hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. LGBTQ people are disproportionately affected by suicide ideation and suicide relative to the general population. With next week being a Suicide Prevention Awareness Week and September being Suicide Prevention Month, we're discussing suicide in the LGBTQ community today on episode 277 of the Queer Money Podcast. To go deeper on this topic than we've ever gone before, we're talking with activist, author, and model Mark Turnipseed. Mark struggled with suicide ideation, attempts, and addiction himself, which he eloquently shares in his book, My Suicide Race. In his book and on today's show, Mark opens up about these struggles, how triathlons of all things helped him turn his life around, and how he's using his story to help anyone with similar challenges. For us, Mark also shares some of his financial challenges and how they exacerbated the others. This is a very personal episode and one that we hope helps anyone who's struggling with suicide ideation, attempts, addiction, and depression. If you or anyone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or the Trevor Project at 866-488-7386 or text the crisis line at 741-741. Remember, we make the Queer Money Podcast for you, so please post your money questions in the Queer Money Facebook group. We may answer your question in an upcoming episode. Now, on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. Join our movement to build a community of happier, healthier, and wealthier gay men by getting your free copy of The Five Building Blocks of a Happy Gay Life at DebtFreeGuys.com forward slash happy. So welcome, Mark, to the show. We appreciate you agreeing to come on. Yes, thank you, guys. I really appreciate the invite. Absolutely. I think this is a, an important topic at an important time. And it sounds like from, from what we understand around your, about your backstory that uh, you're a, a great person to talk to about this. So while we dive into this, uh, before we dive too deep into this, can we start off at the, the very early stages? Uh, when did you realize that you were gay? And as you say in your bio, that being gay wasn't okay. What was that moment like? And when did you start having those feelings? Well, I guess I was, I, I felt like it wasn't okay at a very, very early age, which is what led me, and that was about six years old, which is what led me to believing that I wasn't okay. And that I, that led me to eventually becoming a shameful person and being ashamed of, of who I was and always feeling wrong and always feeling guilty about the changes that would start happening in my life. So while I started to feel attraction to other boys and also even before attraction to other boys feeling guilty about you know I, as i talk about in my book liking minnie mouse more than i liked minnie mouse <laughs> or liking minnie mouse more than i liked mickey mouse enjoying theater and singing and dancing rather than going out and playing baseball with my dad so you know all those types of things kind of I felt wrong and I felt bad about and you know ultimately the the reason behind that was that 
You know, I was growing up in a, a Southern Baptist family. My parents didn't know any better. You know, the gay culture was just kind of coming up. You know, I was in a 1987 baby. And so in 90, 91, 92, you know, that's when like the AIDS epidemic was really hitting or pandemic was really hitting the media sources at least and straight Baptist people were starting to recognize the severity of it. And that's when they were really like, okay, this is an evil thing. The gay people are actually evil and they're destined now for, for hell and AIDS. And this is, you know, a punishment that God has on them. And so I always felt that I was lumped into that. And so ultimately what I decided instead of going with it was to fight against it and to change myself. And I did that because as a little gay boy, I was freaking really good at acting and I loved theater and I loved it. And so I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to act like the straightest boy that I can. So I started kind of method acting from a very early age. I just, you know, plunged myself into this heterosexual male role and ran with that. And I, by the time I was, you know, in my teenage life and then into college and out of college, you know, I was the alpha male kind of in the different um, social circles that I was in. So nobody ever knew what was going on behind the closed doors when all my friends would leave, when my girlfriend would leave, you know, that I would actually get on Craigslist when Grinder came out, you know, it was godsend for me because it was so, you know, easy to do anonymous hookups and and have that little gay thirst kind of quenched and then go back to my my acting afterwards. But ultimately that just got so exhausting that I couldn't hang on to it anymore. You can only keep a role going for so long before in my case I was confronted with either come out, either finally accept myself and stop acting or go back out and start using heroin again or go back out and start drinking again. That just wasn't an option to me because I knew that was just going to lead to me dying ultimately. And I was just not ready for that. So I decided to come out of the closet a couple of years ago now, actually like right before COVID happened. So a little bit over 18, 19 months ago. Wow. So it is really relatively recent for you. It, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. My youth mirrors yours uh, kind of similarly. Many people on the podcast know I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. And so I had the whole, you're evil and bad uh, narrative going on inside as well. And uh, I took on the acting role of being the best little boy in church and oftentimes was referred to as the one that all the mothers wanted their sons to grow up to be just like. And inside, I was saying, oh, (laughs) hell no, please don't let that happen. Right? It's interesting, just kind of as a side note, I kind of wonder if at an early age, queer people are really trained on how to lie well. (laughs) Right? Because we do put on this act of uh, trying to... Well, I I think... uh, up until recently, many queer people have put on this act of trying to fit into a binary straight world. And it has trained our brains into feeling that deception or leading a double life or not telling people who we truly are is kind of okay for us to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, but let's not get ahead of ourselves because I think everybody who's growing up, you know, also tries to fit themselves into that box and tries to be something that they might not be. Yeah. And we're all faced with that, whether you're gay, whether you're trans, whether you're bi, whether you're straight, you know, it may not be sexuality that you deal with and that you have to accept. Everybody, everybody in this human experience is faced with a decision on a daily basis. Be who you are or put on that mask and try to fulfill every expectation that is out there in you. Try to, you know, be this superstar, this this celebrity, this influencer, you know. Try to be this perfect image that you have on Instagram. You know, everybody's faced with that challenge and then ultimately brought down by that reality. And I don't think that's just us homosexuals that deal with it. So I I think that's why I opened my book with this book is for all the liars out there, because the reason why I wrote that book was not for all the gay people out there. And it also wasn't for all the addicts out there. Because we are all faced with little itty bitty lies about who we are that we think that they're helping us. We think that they're aiding us in our position and social structure, but they're actually holding us back. They're holding us back in thriving in our relationships in thriving in our businesses and thriving in our dreams, you know, and so that's why my suicide race was for all the liars out there, not not for the gay liars. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Even once you have accepted that the fact that you are who you are, we still struggle with trying to live up to some sort of expectation inside the gay community or the queer community or outside yeah. of it, right? We're all living up to some sort of expectation. You mentioned some some habits uh, or some behaviors, let's put it that way. You mentioned some behaviors that you were worried you were going to go back to. So how did that struggle develop and how did it manifest itself? The struggle of the initial habits. Let me get make sure I'm clear on this question. Well, you mentioned that you were worried that you would go back to drinking and using heroin, which is, you know, I think a, a very shocking thing for a lot of people to hear someone confess that that was something that you were struggling with. I guess I'm kind of curious, was this struggle with you being gay or putting an outward appearance of something that you weren't? Is that what caused these behaviors? I believe that is part of the puzzle, but I believe it is a rather large puzzle that involves a lot of different pieces. And that's just one piece or maybe like one whole corner of the puzzle. You know, I definitely think it's a large chunk of it and a very important part. But there were a lot of other things that happened and there was a lot of other characteristics and things that occurred in my life that would perpetuate the addictive behaviors. And so, for instance, I remember as as a kid being somewhat obsessive compulsive. I remember in the middle of the night, I would sneak downstairs and check all the cabinets and all the drawers to make sure that they were all closed. And I would do that multiple times. I would check the front door to make sure it was closed. And I remember just like being so um, 
like uneasy about it, but I needed it. And that would be the same type of feeling that I would have much, much later on in my adulthood when it came to drugs and alcohol. It would be an uneasiness with just everything unless I was doing or using drugs in some capacity. And so in in that sense, there was not a need necessarily to escape and not really a need even to get high, but more so an obsessive compulsive need to fill, fill the void that was causing me to be uneasy in life, you know? And so that is actually, I believe, more related to psychological trauma. And at around six years old, I was molested and I took that experience and I didn't ever deal with it, you know, and I began to feel like I was wrong for it. And then I was molested later on too by, by a woman when I was about 12 years old. And I was very ashamed of that because I couldn't perform with her. And, you know, so I think those things kind of also added on to the landscape of, of addiction that I would ultimately end up facing. But then there were other things that I was doing to make myself come off as this masculine person. I actually, I tried on a lot of different identities, right? And one of those was being a class clown and having this general like nonchalant attitude towards school, towards responsibilities, and that included the law. And so I would drive reckless and I thought that it was cool. You know, I lived just like a really high risk type life because it was an identity that I was trying to hold on to was just as it turned into teenager and and adulthood, it was this, it was this bad kid. I wanted to be the bad kid, you know, later in college, it became, I wanted to be the, like the biggest hippie. I wanted to have the longest hair, the coolest tie dye, the best acid and go into the most widespread panic and fish shows, you know? And I would just, I tried so hard to fulfill these identities, but all of them left me so exhausted that the one drug that would would kind of ease that was heroin. So when I found heroin, it released me. It's probably the closest thing to to death that I could find. And I was so unhappy with these identities that I knew were fake that I just wanted to sleep. And heroin helped me to do that momentarily. And then Upon awakening, you know, you'd be in a in a glow for a couple of hours until the withdrawal would set in. Uh, but as long as that drug was there, man, it was my answer. It was my answer. And then every time that I used it, I kind of hoped that it was going to finally kill me. I just said, please, like I I want to die, but I I didn't I didn't want to die killing myself. And so I wanted to die with a drug overdose. Luckily, it didn't happen. But I remember every time I injected myself being like, well, this might be the time. There were some overdoses, but none of them ended in death, luckily. Right. For how many years? How old were you when you started heroin? 
I was probably like 23, 22 or 23, somewhere in there. That whole time frame is really tough to to nail down. Things started to get really, really confusing as, you know, I was taking Xanax from multiple different prescribers and, you know, buying it. So I don't know if you know about that stuff, but, you know, the memory loss and also staying drunk basically 24-7 and hallucinogens. Yeah, everything's just kind of blurry. But I know it was around my junior year of college. And by the end of my senior year, it was full-blown. Really, heroin was all that I cared about. And then that continued. So it was about three years because that continued into my postgraduate work when I was um, working for um, the University of Montana Graduate School in multiple different psychology labs. And I was doing well in my senior year, but then as the heroin picked up and I was taking Adderall to try to perform and heroin to try to pull me down and I just stopped performing. And then they were just like, you, you don't have, you don't have it anymore, Mark. You're not producing the the research that we, that we needed. So I had to drop out of graduate school and I became a CNA and started trying to find some sort of uh, freedom from addiction at that point, because that was about the same time that I had my first son with my ex-wife. We tried to figure that out, (laughs) but ultimately it wouldn't turn out very pretty. So it was a rocky road in between um, suboxone and methadone and and then I would stop using that and just start using a whole bunch of Xanax and find heroin again and then back into and then maybe I would be clean for a while and I would just drink moonshine and just be belligerent and lose jobs and get DUIs and ultimately she she ended up leaving and taking the baby with her and then I went way down the hill and ended up landing myself in rehab. And that was about six years ago, seven years. That's when I got clean from heroin. So now I've been clean from heroin for about seven years. Seven years, I think, in October. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere. So banking fits into your life, not the other way around. So before we proceed, I'm going to ask the next question. Um, just for folks who are listening, I know that these kinds of conversations can um, potentially be triggering for some of you. So just to let you know, if this is this is taking you in a direction where you shouldn't be or don't want to go, it's 100% okay to stop listening to this episode. And also because we are going to be touching on the topics of suicide and suicide attempts, just want to remind folks out there that there are a couple of resources, the Trevor Lifeline, that phone number is 866-488-7386. And then the National Suicide Hotline of 800-273-8255. So Mark, you mentioned that clearly, obviously, lots of different things going on in your life. But you mentioned earlier on that heroin was the one thing that caused you to feel like you could get some relief in the form of wanting to sleep and possibly sleep forever. Is that 
really when you really started to consider this idea of suicide or ending your life? No, I've had thoughts of suicide my entire life. Uh, even before I knew what suicide was, even before I knew that it was a possibility, I did not like who I was and I was not happy with who I was. I I remember looking down at myself and thinking that I was born the wrong sex. Um, I didn't like my male organs. I didn't like my penis and I didn't relate to it and I didn't relate to other guys. And I did not feel like I was the right human being ultimately all in all like i didn't feel like i was right in my religion i didn't feel like i was in the right family i didn't feel like i was in the right body i mean everything just felt wrong and i wanted escape at a very very early age and i remember thinking about dying i remember thinking about that before i even knew that that it could happen all i knew is like that I was really scared of blood. And so I was like mortified of the thought of having to use a Band-Aid if I cut my penis off, like a Band-Aid would heal it. But I was also mortified of cutting myself in any way that would end up in blood. So that was a very healthy fear at that age because who knows, like that might've happened. One of those things might've happened. So there's lots of, clearly a lot of things going on uh, here with the history of feeling kind of this maybe lack of self-worth and uh, feeling like you don't belong. Do you think that that is what attributed or contributed to these unhealthy behaviors happening in your life? Oh, surely, surely. Yeah. And I would I would try to use different identities to cover that up. Everything from being the class clown to, you know, stepping in at about like 12 or so to being an athlete and then finding drugs right a little bit right after that. And so at about 14 or 15, I was like an all-star football player on my football team. I was in a quad A school in Atlanta, big school, great football program. And I was a freshman and I was on the varsity team, which there were, that was like unheard of. And I led my team in sacks and they called me the crazy white boy. <laughs> and I was in the newspaper as the smallest, as the smallest defensive end in the state of Georgia to lead his team in sacks. And so I excelled at things that, you know, I just, I took it to the extreme, all these, all these different things. So so yeah, that definitely led led me to when when drugs and alcohol came up as a as a possible identity. It was more so the identity than it was actually using the drug. I didn't really ever care for the experience of getting high. I more so cared for the identity of it, I believe. And so that's kind of what drove the initial engagement at least with all of the substances. And then, you know, everything starts adding up and then substances started to become a tool for me. So legal problems would add up, relational problems would add up. And then I would go, Oh, wait a second. Instead of feeling bad about this, I can, I've now learned that I can just take a pill for it. 
oh wait, I don't feel like I'm I'm tired, I'm hungover, I don't feel like going out with my friends tonight. Oh well, I'll just take some ecstasy, I'll feel better. Then after the identity part of using, then it became using as a tool. And then the addictions would start setting in and using as a need, you know, using as a physical and emotional need, feeling like you can't breathe, feeling like I just, there was no way that I could wake up in the day and face the sun. There was no way I could even roll over in my pillow, honestly, without knowing that next to me there was at least a shot or a beer at the very least, and hopefully a pill bottle with Xanax just to get my day going, you know? And that need really started probably, I would say when I was about like 22 or so. And then, you know, the heroin would, would start filling that need when I was probably like 24. So 23 or 24. Just out of curiosity from listening, it sounds like there's a lot of desire for acceptance. And whether that acceptance is from the people at school and the football team, acceptance from yourself, acceptance from church, acceptance from your family, looking to fit in so you can get that acceptance, right? Yes. Acceptance was a huge, played a huge role. I can't really pin down if it was acceptance for myself that mattered most or acceptance from other people. But I know that when I finally started to get sober, that the answer was no longer acceptance from other people because I kind of realized that in order for me to stay sober and live happy, that I only was able to seek acceptance from myself. And as long as I had that, nobody could ever take that from me, right? Right. And so... As I started this sobriety journey through triathlon, that's when things started to click for me and how triathlon really helped me to start to experience acceptance on a, on a brand new level because I had, I had never really done endurance sports. I had done the football stuff. I knew how to work hard. I knew how to summon that spirit for short bursts of energy. But I had no idea. And I, you know, I knew how to like put on that identity and that that mask for a short period of time until my friends would leave. But I had no idea how to, you know, really go through with it, <laughs> how to really, really sit in my discomfort for a long, long period of time until I started triathlon. And I remember first beginning with with swimming and looking at my training plan and being like oh my gosh this guy wants me to swim 1600 yards like how on earth am i going to do that and we're starting with that he's not like telling me to run, swim 500 and just a couple days before i downloaded the training plan i had tried to swim 25 yards and i could barely do it and then when I downloaded the training plan, it said 1,600 yards. And I had made this commitment to train for the triathlon. And I remember sitting on the edge of the pool and just being like, you know what? I am just going to do this thing. I am just going to breathe and like one stroke at a time it and make it through 
this thing. And, you know, after about 25 yards, I was huffing and puffing and didn't think that I could do it. But I just kept putting one arm in front of the next and I kept finding my breath. And sure enough, I got through that training session. And then, you know, that one little success goes, oh, my goodness. I, I like I got out of that water just smiling, feeling like a million bucks. I honestly I, I thought that I was like a bona fide triathlete at that point. I was like, <laughs> I might as well just go try try out for the Olympics. Like I just swam that. That was incredible. <laughs> and then, you know, I started stacking on those little small successes of just bearing with the discomfort and just taking it easy. And, you know, there's in that moment, in that time span of like an hour, you know, when it used to take me an hour to swim a mile, in that time span of doing those training, so many different thoughts come into my head, so many different thoughts that are unsettling. And, and they reminded me of, you know, the disparaging thoughts that would occur during panic attacks or during um, heroin withdrawals or alcohol withdrawal in early stage recovery. They reminded me of those feelings. And it was through that that I started to realize that the feelings that I would get in these swimming episodes when I was alone in the water and with my thoughts, that these feelings and these thoughts about myself they didn't have to impede on my performance. I could feel as horrible about myself as I wanted to or as as came. But ultimately, what would show me that I was much better than even than my feelings and my thoughts was that if I just put one arm in front of the next and just kept on swimming. And then I would prove to myself time and time again that I can. I can do it too. I can do it. He can do it. The people who haven't started yet, they can do it too, and we can all do it. And I started to get filled with this, you know, sense of confidence and strength. And and so, you know, after a couple of years of doing that, when it came to finally going, am I going to be able to come out or not? I was so ready. I know how to accept myself in face of discomfort. I know how to accept myself even though I didn't want to, or even though I was uncertain, I, I knew it. I knew I had flexed those muscles, you know, so I was, I was ready. So is, do you think that that's, uh, that this whole process here of, of accepting yourself and gaining control of your addictions is then what led to your desire to not want to commit suicide? Well, you know, I can't say that I'm absolutely healed from a desire to want to commit suicide. And I, I talk about this in, in a lot of more closed circles where people also experience these types of feelings. But a lot of addicts out there who have severe depression, especially if they've had depression their entire life, like myself, I've got like a little bit of that bipolar, um, manic depressive type stuff where I'll be doing just fine and wonderful and everything will be perfect. And then all of a sudden I'll wake up one day and it will not be perfect anymore and it will all be horrible. And that still happens to me to this day. I still have thoughts of suicide, so I'm not, I'm not healed from it. 
But what I am healed from is being a slave to my feelings, a slave to my emotions, and a slave to my thoughts about myself. So when those feelings and those thoughts come, I know that all I have to do is just take the next step. And literally, usually that's so simple for me. It's just, what's the next thing that I have to do today? I feel like killing myself. I'm just going to make my bed. I'm just going to get up and make coffee and I'm going to smell my coffee and shoot, the coffee's not working. Okay, I'm going to go do my workout. And I just, you know, go through my routine and it works. And I think this is a, a, a very great place to start thinking about how money came in as well, because it was right around that time that when my thoughts were really, I was really starting to learn that my thoughts did not have control over me, that I also started to realize that things like my finances didn't have to have control over me. If only I dotted my I's and crossed my T's when it came to my finances, that they no longer had to have control over me. Same with my work, same with my business, same with my relationships. And it all, to me, it boiled down to one word, and that was like, how can I apply integrity into every area of my life? So there was just so many, and, and routine is one of those. So waking up and making my bed, but also the routine of doing my budget and cleaning out my, my financial reports, you know, um, all of that type of stuff just once my life was was filled with those types of activities and things, I have complete power in it. So when scary things happen, when a big bill comes or when scary thoughts come, I know exactly how I'm going to handle it. You know, it's not so scary anymore. It's just something that comes. And it's not like just because I have a bill doesn't mean that I'm poor or it doesn't mean that I'm going to be broken and the life that I know is it's the end of all, you know, and same with the suicidal thoughts. Just if those come, that doesn't mean that I am a worthless piece of trash anymore because I have power over those now. I'm curious, in, in before you started the healing, when you used to get those bills or you would see your bank account and see that maybe you were at a negative balance or a low balance, did that maybe exacerbate some of the depression and suicidal thoughts? Oh my gosh. Yes. Big time. I think that um, finances were always one of those things that exacerbated those symptoms. I remember when I was a drug dealer too and dealing tens of thousands of dollars of drugs a month and then coming up short and thinking that the only option, the only solution was to kill myself. You know, that was definitely, definitely there. And then yes, when, when it came to my drug use, I would wake up the next morning and I would look and I would be in the negatives and I'd be like, how on earth am I going to get out of this? But not only that, it was like, I also have a $500 a day habit. So how on earth am I going to get enough money to, to stay high? Um, there's no way that I can do it. So I'm going to have to just kill myself. So yeah, there, you know, that definitely exacerbated it. As I was starting to get sober, also, you know, finances didn't catch up 
for quite some time and they still really, I mean, they still aren't, I don't, I don't sit here with oodles of money where I'm living in leisure and comfort, you know, but I, I do have control over it and I don't really fear them, but it took some time to where I wasn't looking at my bank account and going, Oh my God, like I'm never going to get out of this. There's no way to swim up. And just that, I mean, I think it's the same process that happened with triathlon is as long as I just do the best that I can today and I just get through this training episode that I could, that I can make it and that my finances will get better. So for me, early stage recovery, it was Mark, just don't buy this thing that you don't absolutely need. You know, I was actually, I was living in I had transformed this house that I was living in. I wasn't even, it was a family house and I wasn't even paying rent, but I was so broken, so bad with money that I couldn't even afford a house that I wasn't paying rent in. Like that's pretty bad. So what I did was transform the place into an Airbnb and I was living in the basement, an unfinished concrete basement with a little itty bitty bed on the ground and uh, Airbnb above me to just pay for groceries. And then I was still coming in the negative and I was just like, how on earth do I get by this? So, you know, then I started to research different ways that I could also kind of pull my life together in every single way. So financials, my spiritual life, my physical life. And so, you know, I did triathlon for that, for my physical stuff. Um, I started doing a lot of mindfulness, meditation, and prayer for my spiritual life. And then relationships-wise, there was a lot of coaching and stuff that I started to apply and and use some discipline um, when it came to relationships, too. And stuff started to finally come together. It's interesting. You, You talked about something that I think a lot of folks have a really difficult time doing. And that is where you said, I just need to break the cycle by not buying the thing I don't need. And in, in some cases, that may be the drugs or the alcohol. Some cases, that may be a tangible purchase of some sort of uh, bag, a pair of shoes or whatever. And some people, it's an experience, right? But if it's, bra- it's breaking the cycle, and sometimes the cycles... John and I like to refer to the debt depression cycle, where people oftentimes feel bad, then they go out and they spend money in some manner. And so in some cases, it's uh, it's self-medicating. Sometimes it's shopping. Sometimes it's eating. But then they spend money and then they look at their, uh, you know, a week or a couple weeks later, they look at their bank account. They realize they spent money that they don't have. And all of a sudden, they feel bad again. Well, the best way to get rid of that feeling yeah. of ba- being bad, feeling bad, is to go out and spend some money again, whether that's on self-medicating or food or a purchase of some sort. And it sounds like what you had the confidence to do was to say to yourself, "I got to break the cycle. I got to stop at some point and let the circle catch up." Right? Eventually, yeah. it'll catch up. The money will catch up. The the getting my life back on track, it'll eventually catch up. And maybe not the money. I don't know if I started with like the goal of the money catching up as much so as the goal of like the money not destroying me, maybe just having some sort of peace about it. And I remember what like, 
you mentioned buying shoes or buying a bag. It had been many years since that was even an option in my financial situation. I mean, I was struggling with trying to buy a cup of coffee. You know, I was basically homeless and I was debating, you know, how can I eat with, you know, $5 today? And so that was my struggle. It wasn't buying back. Now it's kind of like that. Now it's kind of like, well, I really want a new pair of running shoes. I know these are getting kind of old, but I could probably go for another month, you know, because I didn't budget in new running shoes yet. So I might as well just hold off, you know, but I've started, I've learned how to balance that. And for, for me, you know, it, it's similar to diet. I think that diet is a great way to kind of understand finances. Like we have a, a wealth of calories that we get to consume in the day, right? And then if we go over that, we feel really crappy and we just, I, I get lethargic, I get fat feeling, I get depressed and just, it's not good. Now, however, if I'm expending a whole bunch of energy and I get to use a little bit more calories, then I get to, you know, get a little bit more food and eat, eat the whole pizza rather than one slice. Like all of a sudden my, my balance starts to even out correctly. And I start to feel like the food that I'm putting in has a purpose. It has a place, right? So I go out and I go eat this sandwich. Well, the carbs that are wrapping up this sandwich are, they have a place because I need to replenish my carbs, the protein in it. I need to replenish my protein. You know, it all has its place. And then money is, is no different to me. You know, I go out and I, I work really hard and I, I pull in some money for the day. And now I have this amount that I'm able to apply at different purposes, right? I'm able to apply it towards this bill. I'm able to apply it towards my rent or towards my savings or towards my investments, things like that. So it's all like purposeful eating and purposeful diet that kind of like set me free. I remember cutting out like, and I still kind of practice this to today. I, I cut out like I don't go, I try not to buy coffee, right? Because I have a coffee maker at home. So why? Unless it's business related. There's so many different little ways. I remember looking at my finances when I finally put it on paper and being like, oh my gosh, I'm sober and I'm spending like $500 a month on coffees. And so I didn't actually stop drinking coffees. Instead, I started drinking a different type of coffee. I started drinking just Americanos with a little bit of cinnamon in it rather than a $6 coffee. And my coffee went down from six to two and all of a sudden it was like a $200 bill. And then I was like, whoa, that's kind of cool. Maybe I could just drink coffee at home too. And then my bill went from $200 to like $13 a month. And I was like, wow, if I just purposefully put my money into the right places, like I can save so much. And with diet, I do the same thing. I'm like, okay, these are... I eat all perfect calories throughout the day and now I can eat my thing of ice cream because I haven't put like, <laughs> I haven't had a soda with every meal, right. you know, I haven't had like, you know, so people ask me about my diet a lot and I just say that it's all, it's all purposeful 
and then I indulge occasionally. But the thing about indulgence, and you kind of touched on it when you buy a pair of new shoes and you buy something, the thing about indulgences and same with fine things is that we really don't need much of them. But it's a slippery slope because once you have one of them, you want a thousand of them. Right. And mm-hmm. the same comes with ice cream. Like what I'd started to notice is that if I just if I just buy a little kid's scoop of ice cream and then walk out of that ice cream store, I am just as fine as if I end up buying I'm just as fine, if not better, honestly, than if I buy the four scoop cone dipped in chocolate. You know? It's so weird yeah. because you just want more and more and more, but it's really okay. So interesting thing with shopping that I've noticed too is like how how quick it comes. And so sometimes the whole reward and the whole like wait and the build up for that coming to your door is so exciting to me that it makes the the actual thing that's coming not as important. And so I kind of live off of that. And so sometimes I'll order something and not accept the next day prime. And rather I wait, I tell it to, you know, spend its couple of weeks out there and who knows, la la land <laughs> while they sort it out so that it comes. But I, I think the same thing about, you know, having really nice things in life too. It's it's probably probably about the same. I have yet to buy my Rolex, but you know, I think that once I do, I would just want another one. I just want a different color one for to match that suit. And um, once I have that one scoop of ice cream, I, re- I really just want another one, but I know that I don't actually need it. I, I have to laugh because John and I have, uh, John loves ice cream and, and I love popcorn. <laughs> and when we go out to get ice cream, I'm the one who typically gets the kitty cone and he's the one who gets the <laughs> the I multiple multiple so scoop waffle cone <laughs> dipped in chocolate. But then we come home oh, and I have a <laughs> bowl of popcorn that's about the size of two gallons. So <laughs> Yeah. And I might get my ice cream cone like once every once a quarter. And he has his bowl of popcorn like every at least five nights a week. Yeah. <laughs> so we've kind of well, gotten a little off topic here, but you talked about kind of this whole idea of the shift in your life and making changes. And we know that suicide is the second leading cause of death among people in the U.S. between the ages of 10 and 24. And data shows that even though there's a growing acceptance of of queer people in society, that suicide attempts and suicide is increasing within the queer community. Do you have any suggestions for where folks can start or what tools that folks can use to try to get themselves further down a path similar to what you've been on? Yeah, totally. I think the, and it's a very simple concept. Um, First, suicide's on the rise for everybody, not just queers and not just gay people. And so we're, we're definitely not alone there, but that feeds into the, the number one concept that I think can heal everybody's case of depression, suicide, anxiety, whatever it is, is that you're not alone ultimately. And as alone as you do feel, 
reach out to these programs like the Trevor Project and stuff and start to listen to the similarities, start to listen to ways that that you're not alone. Because it was it was then it was then when I started to go, oh, my gosh, wait a second. I'm not alone. Like there's other people who've been like this. There's other people who have these addiction problems, who have these suicidal thoughts that once I learned I wasn't alone, I learned that there was a way out and I learned that there was a solution. Everyone's got a different solution, you know, or everyone's got a mix of different solutions that will that will end up freeing them. But the one common thread for all of us is that we're not alone. And that's the beginning of all the different pathways to the solutions. And so once we start to feel a part of something bigger and something greater in this universe, then we we start to feel more worthy and more beautiful, less unique, but more essential to the greater scheme of things. Nice. I love that. Less love unique, that. but yeah. more essential. Yeah. yeah, that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> you just well, came up with that. I do think, you know, yeah. we all want, I think, because of seeking acceptance, we're all looking for acceptance. So many of us are out there trying to prove how special and unique we are, because if we're special and unique, then everybody's going to have to accept us, right? But if we can accept ourselves, it's okay to not be as unique, but still be as vitally needed, as you said. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, totally. For those in the queer community and society in general who don't struggle with suicide ideation and, and attempts, what can we do for those who do have these challenges? Well, I think that realizing that everybody is a part of something much greater than themselves is ultimately what we can all do. And that just boils down to being kind to one another. And I think kindness is also not necessarily like picking up a piece of trash for somebody or holding a door open for somebody, but it's also waving to your neighbor and it's also making yourself available. And it's also just sharing your story with somebody else and going, you know, yesterday I was struggling too. And and this is what I did. And, you know, What's curious is is the man who saved my life really was just a stranger in the sauna after I had swam that 25 yards in the pool and was got out huffing and puffing and he's sitting in the sauna and he's like wow looks like you worked hard and I was like I could barely <laughs> I could barely make it through 25 yards and he goes you should train for a triathlon and i go are you kidding <laughs> and he was like well i did i did one and he just started sharing his story and i looked at him and i was like there's no way you're a triathlete <laughs> you know i was so superficial at that point but he started sharing his story with me and i was like oh my gosh if he did it like maybe i can too and that only came because he was kind enough to share his story with me rather than sit there in his silence and just be whatever he was doing inside of his head. You know, so I think even sharing your story can be enough to end up saving someone's life. And I don't mean going out and just like every single person you meet, you know, sharing, 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 but just being neighborly, you know, being approachable, being and trying to put on that kind spirit can end up saving somebody's life. I love that. 
Yeah, thank you. Knowing what you know about yourself and life today, could go back and talk to six-year-old Mark Turnipseed about who you are and what your, how your life has turned out. What would you tell him? Well, I would tell him he wasn't alone. I think that's an important thing for all of us to remember. <laughs> it does, unfortunately, make us all think of the song, right? Now we're all singing. Go, I, You're going to have to sing, John, because I everybody knows I can't sing. I don't know what song you're thinking of. <laughs> you were not alone. <laughs> I am here with you. I don't even know who sings it. Just, <laughs> yes, but it's anyway, very true. <laughs> not trying to make light of what you just said, but Mark, thank you very much for, for sharing that and sharing your story. That's part of the reason why we wanted to have you on the podcast. So September is Suicide Awareness Month, and we know that a lot of folks are struggle with these kinds of thoughts all year round. But at this time of the year, we seem to be heading into a time period when things can get easily depressing for a lot of folks. And so keep that in mind. And Mark, you've written more about this, right? You have a book, My Suicide Story. Where can I readers learn about and find your book and connect with you more? I'm, I'm sorry, our listeners too. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Instagram's a great place to find little links that head in that direction. My Instagram is Mark A. Turnipseed. There's also my website, which is markaturnipseed.com. Both of those can lead you pretty quickly with minimal searching for the book, My Suicide Race. Now, my book is also, it's available on Amazon. I also recorded the audio book, so it's available on Audible, and it's at Barnes & Noble, and any bookstore. So if you don't want to support like Amazon, which I understand some people don't, or Barnes & Noble, if you want to support your local bookstore, it's also available at any of those. It might not be on the shelf, but the person behind the counter can sure order the book, and it can be printed within a week or so and, sh and shipped to any store worldwide. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mark. We appreciate having you on. This is a great and informative episode. We appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun to chat about. And folks, stick around for the Query Money takeaway from this episode. How does your bank support the LGBT community? Not at all? For Pride in June? Or 365 days a year? Capital One proudly supports the LGBT community throughout the year. Maybe it's time to support a bank that supports us. Go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash cafe for more info. Queer Money is being brought to you in part by the five building blocks of a happy gay life. Join the growing community of happy, healthy, and wealthy gay men who love their lives inside and out. Get your free copy of the five building blocks of a happy gay life at debtfreeguys.com forward slash happy. Thank you, Mark, for coming on our show and being so open and honest about your struggles and what you've been doing that's working for you. We hope, for sure, it's helping others. The community is better by knowing your story. To you, our listeners, here's your queer money takeaway from this episode. If you or anyone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please consider contacting the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, the Trevor Project at 866-488-7386, or text the crisis line at 741-741. As a follow-up to today's show, join us next week when we share nine types of low-cost self-care. Thank you and have a good week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. 
Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.